Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of the Theater Podcast: Intimate Personal Conversations with Theater's Biggest Names. I'm Alan Seals. And I'm Jillian Hackman. I was trying to think of something witty to say, and I just it just didn't come out. I mean, we could have made so many references based on this guest that, <laughs> like, I'm I have like forty filtering through my head right now just based on projects he's done. I'm an altar boy. I, no, I'm an altar boy. Okay, you're an altar boy. I'm an awesome '80s prom. I'm Timoon from Once on This Island. I want to be the goat. Oh no, I, you took mine. I was going to be the goat. Okay. Wait. Anyway, this is with <laughs> Ken Davenport. This episode, if you haven't already guessed, producer extraordinaire Ken Davenport, who has done so much in his career. He's been around. Um, scrolling through my notes here, 26 years. 26 years. He has been. That's how old I am. Goodness. Yeah. So, he, <laughs> so he's been producing as long as you have been in existence on this planet and has changed the face of, of everything. He's crowdfunded uh, the production budget work and had to set like this new conversation with the SEC to get it, to get anyone to be able to invest in a Broadway show. And like what was phenomenal, he had a, a what was it? Um, it wasn't, I was going to say a mind reader, not a mind reader. Um, I know what you're talking about. For my first time. Yeah. Oh, what's the name for it? He had in somebody who could basically tell if you were lying and virgins got in free. And that, who does that? Who does that? He does that. That's, I'm, That's as you can tell, I'm amazing. really excited about this conversation. We had such a good chat. Um, he, he started out on stage which led him to get uh, to start doing work behind the stage or behind you know behind the scenes, and um, you know started out as a as a production assistant and just worked his way up doing general management and just into producing and God this guy's had a huge career, but he thinks outside the box all the time and doesn't take no for an answer. It's like if it's never been done, that's like more of a challenge to him. Yeah, that's really cool. I just like that so many things that. I loved growing up in these different theater experiences that were really important to me. That was him. I loved Alter Boys when it first came out. Um, something else I really loved is he produced a documentary for a band I'm friends with, Red Wanting Blue. Yeah. Which blew my mind. I was like, wait, you know them too? Like all these different things, he just does it. And that's, that is really cool. Yeah, he's he's really cool. So obviously, uh, we'll try to keep this short. Before we get into this episode, please take a moment and give us a rating on whatever application you are using to listen to the podcast right now. Please just share with one friend. Just one friend. That's all we ask. And then that Two friend, if you got them. Two if you got them. You can visit us online at ttp.fm, and you can go to ttp.fm slash Patreon to show your support, various levels, get you various rewards, and uh, a couple people have shown their support at a tier that gets them a shout-out in this reflection, namely now, still my brother, Paul, and now my dad. Thanks, David. <laughs> Thanks, Seals boys. <laughs> my family is helping us uh, get these, these episodes transcribed here, so... Everybody, please enjoy this episode with producer extraordinaire Ken Davenport. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 
This two-time Tony-winning producer has a 26-year career directly involved with Broadway. As one of the most entrepreneurial people in the creative space, he continues to reinvent himself and how he is involved in the Broadway space itself. In 2004, he founded Davenport Theatrical Enterprises, otherwise known as DTE, which allows him to create, produce, and manage. His first venture as a producer were in three off-Broadway shows, The Awesome 80s Prom, Alter Boys, and My First Time, which he also wrote. Davenport's first Broadway credit as a producer was 13, and since then he has produced over a dozen other Broadway shows, including the first Broadway revival of Godspell, the Tony Award-winning best musical Kinky Boots, and Deaf West Theater's Spring Awakening. Ken Davenport, welcome to the Theater Podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Now that I finally got through that that intro. I appreciate that intro. You, I was like, what? I, man, I'm old. You have I done 26 years. You have done so much. But I want to start. I want to start at the beginning because I was reading that you originally wanted to to do law. Is that right? Well, I'm a child of the '80s, so if you uh, grew up at a small private prep school like I did in Central New England, Sturbridge, Massachusetts, uh, you watched a lot of LA Law. So all that you <laughs> wanted to do was be one of those nasty people like Arnie Becker and like defend really bad people. So I grew up and, you know, you also wanted to be Alex P. Keaton a little bit on Family Ties. So yeah, I grew up wanting to be a lawyer. Um, I had gotten into the theater when I was five, got too cool for it when I was about 12. Thought I was going to play for the Boston Red Sox and the Boston Celtics simultaneously, like I was going to be that kid. Then I thought I was going to go and be a lawyer like all my other friends at my high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I uh, quit my uh, basketball team in like a scene right out of High School Musical. Like literally, I was like on the court. I got hit in a place where guys don't like to get hit with the ball. And I kind of doubled over. My coach called me a wimp. And I was like, you know what? That's it. I quit. Really? And I'm going to do the musical. <laughs> and I marched <laughs> off the court. And I auditioned for Anything Goes the next day. Got the lead. And uh, that's it. My life was forever changed. That's incredible. I... I- I wish that at that time people had cell phones. So they, that would have been like this viral sensation. I'm so glad they did not because <laughs> I think back and what a dramatic teenager I was, although I'm glad I did it. That's fun. Okay, so so you were in high school. That's when you, you auditioned for Anything Goes, got bitten by the bug then. Or I guess previously you, you got too cool for it. But what made you interested as a child? Did you have parents that were sort of into that too? Yeah, so my parents are the ones that dragged me to my first audition when I was five years old. And now that I'm uh, in the business and I study a lot of research about what gets people into the theater, that's the number one thing that gets people in is parents. So it's a lot of the work that I do uh, is encouraging parents to come to the theater, get involved in the theater, uh, and then for bring their kids to the theater. In fact, one we're in the middle of this big Broadway boom right now. I think most people know it's like a golden age again. And uh, I could go on and on about all the reasons why, but one of the number one reasons, or one, one of the top reasons why Broadway is booming right now is because of Disney. And it's because of 26 years ago or so, a group of young kids, eight, nine, 10 years old, were brought to their first Broadway musical, Beauty and the Beast, by their parents. And now those nine, 10-year-old kids are now, they have kids of their own, five, six, seven, eight. And since they were, I just said five, six, seven, eight, by the way. And since they were raised on, <laughs> da, 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 yeah. since they were raised on a tradition in the theater, they're exposing their kids to the theater. 
So Disney planted a seed 26 years ago uh, that is really now bearing a lot of fruit for all of us. Was Beauty and the Beast the first Disney theatrical production? Yeah, it was. Wow. Wow, yeah, I guess... Yeah, that that's come full circle now, and they're they're crushing it. I mean, what Lion King's now going on? What fifteen years? Twenty twenty years? No, longer than that. It's like nineteen ninety seven. It started actually because I was the associate company manager of Ragtime across the street, and we were like in major competition about who would have the bigger gross. We lost. <laughs> we lost. <laughs> yeah, I know Frozen doesn't look like it's going anywhere. Actually, I'll I'll tell you a very. Uh, little dirty secret about Lion King and Ragtime at the time. Because for you listeners who don't know the story, it was produced, Ragtime was produced by Livent. Uh, very famously, a company that went bankrupt after. And the uh, CEO, Garth Drabinsky, who was a real mentor of mine, actually. I learned a lot of what to do and what not to do. Uh, but he went to jail. Uh, and we used to wait until... Lion, we knew what Lion, we had, a, we had a little mole in the box office at Lion King. We used to know what, find out what they would do on Sunday afternoons at the box office, mm-hmm. their final tally for the week. And we would massage our numbers a little bit to oh, make no. them a little bit better. Yes, dirty little secret. Ooh. Revealed Ooh, well. here first. <laughs> that um, I better get off the subject. I'm probably going to get sued. That by probably is partially why he went to jail. Could be. Could sounds be. sounds like it. Uh, but then, so you were. You said you were your company manager for Ragtime. Is that how you- I was the associate company manager for Ragtime. Yeah, it was one of the three shows I did for them. And uh, you know, I, we jumped a bit. Of course, I, I um, did end up going to Johns Hopkins University, where I was going to be a lawyer, but did more theater down there than anything else. Um, so I transferred to the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU to pursue mm-hmm. a, a career in the theater as an actor, like most of us do. And it was there that I uh, was introduced to the other side of the business. I did a production assistant position on the 1993 revival of My Fair Lady with Richard Chamberlain, mm-hmm. and you know did everything that you know every cliche you could ever imagine. Got Richard fresh roasted turkey sandwiches, like off the bone, had all that stuff, walked dogs in a blizzard and loved every minute of it. That's when I knew that I could do something besides perform, that I'd be very happy just working on the staffs of Broadway shows. Well, do, do you, was there a point when you were, when you had a choice, I guess, like your career sort of had a choice to fork and you're like, I have to either put all my eggs in the acting basket or I'm just going to be like, okay, I can go do this production side. It's a great question because I think a lot of young people feel that that's the way it is. I must make a choice, like good side of the force or bad side of the force. And that, like, <laughs> that's it. And I started to investigate. Like I, I, I just, you know, there's a cliche in the 80s, uh, just say no. I believe that when it comes to your career, it's about just saying yes. So I said yes to a tremendous number of opportunities, including the production assistant position. I didn't know what it meant. I had to take a semester off from school, which I finagled some credit for. But I just said yes because I knew it was working around Broadway. So I did that. And then I went back and performed for a little bit. And then I did another PA gig. And then I worked in an office for a while. Then I performed. And then I worked for an agent. And I hated that. And I kind of went back and forth. There is no like, you must go down this path and that's it. You're done. I really flirted with both sides until eventually I was like, okay, this performing thing, I actually really am bored out of my skull. And I, the thing I just did, working in a general manager's office, I like that. So hmm. when I got my next opportunity, which was to company manage a non-union national tour, not knowing how to company manage a non-union national tour, but a friend of mine said, you'll be fine. I just said yes. 
And that led me on to a 10-year career as a company manager and general manager for big Broadway shows. Uh, everything, again, Ragtime, Showboat, Candide, Jekyll and Hyde, Chicago, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Gypsy with Bernadette, which is where I really learned the business and um, started to develop my own producing style, uh, which is, you know, towards the end of that company management career, I was like, you know, if I was the producer, this is what I would do here. And that's when I knew it was time to step out on my own. What does a company manager do? So I sometimes say that if a running of a Broadway show on a day-to-day basis was like a relay race, the company manager starts the race off in the morning and then hands the baton over at 7.30 to the stage manager. So we take care of the administrative side, um, everything from payroll to negotiations with actors, agents, to uh, contract, like all that administrative side. Uh, and then we would go to the theater. Literally, that's a company manager's job. Go to the theater, check in with the actors. How's everybody doing? Stage manager, you good? Great. You take it from here. I'm going to settle up with the box office, collect all the money and count it, make sure it's still there and that no one's massaging it like we did at, the, at ragtime. And then uh, and then go home. So um, it's kind of, a again, the business side of it. You're a producer's foot soldier, if you will. Interesting. So... What what time would your day start? Are you working like 9 a.m. normal hours and then you're there at the theater till 11 p.m.? Do you go home? Do you sleep? What happens? Actually, company management hours are like the best hours on the planet. I sometimes am like, well, if this producing thing doesn't work out, I'd be happy to go back to company management because you work like, I showed up at work at like 12 or 12.30 and you were done at like 9. Now, like it's a long day and you also have to work six days a week, Saturdays and Sundays, but you're, so it's a lot of hours. There's nothing like getting up in double digits. Like when you can wake up at 10 and still make it to work on time and do some errands beforehand, you're, you've got a pretty good gig. So it sounds like either company management or tech. That's where you can just exactly. you know, come to work at, at noon and nobody cares. Um, that's really cool. And, and so you were doing all this. You said you did 10 years, 10 years of company management and then decided to, to start your... Is that when you started uh, the Davenport uh, production company? Well, I, I quickly realized that I wanted to create and produce my own shows. So while I was company managing, I would go home at nine o'clock and get home. And then I would like sit in front of my computer and try to figure out like, what am I going to do? What rights can I get? What can I create with my friends? Like, and that was happening while I was company managing. And then one of the shows and one of the ideas that I had started, two of them actually at the same time, started to simmer to a boil on the stove. And when Gypsy closed, I decided to step out on my own for a little bit and give those shows a shot. Hmm. And and is that when that's when DTE was formally created? And was Alter Boys your first? Your it first was Alter Boys and the Awesome Eighties Prom were yeah. like two horses, like right out of the gate, jockeying for first position about which one was going to take off. And I was like, had just flipped a switch to turn the Awesome Eighties Prom officially off-Broadway while Alter Boys was in the New York Musical Theater Festival in its very first season, which I just wrote about on the blog this morning. So yeah, they were both happening at once, and I didn't know what I was doing. I was just like running from Webster Hall downtown up to the Puerto Rican Traveling Theater uptown trying to figure it all out. And happily, after a period of time, both of those shows took off. Yeah. Oh man, Mike Maloney and Michael Barra, two old friends of mine. Yeah, so I, I used funny, to go to Winster Hall and watch them all the time. Yeah, I, I love Awesome 80s Prom. I was there. One of one of your loyal patrons. Oh, good. Um, so you've got a lot of, of innovative ideas, um, and, and your, your projects are different. 
the ideas that you do in the industry are different. Why, why are you not pigeonholing yourself, for lack of a better term? I mean, why decide to to have like a board game and doing the TV and film and everything? Like you're just you're branching so far beyond um, just producing Broadway shows. And then we'll get into this in a second. But you're also starting your own festival. Like where? Why do all of this stuff? Again, do you sleep? I, I wish. Sometimes I wish I could turn these things away from me. Like they, when I have an idea, I have to do it. If I think it's a good idea, it's just, I have a bit of entrepreneurial ADD, which is not necessarily the best thing. Like I get an idea and I'm like, oh, that's really good. I want to see that executed. I want to see what, what happens. So I just do them. I mean, the board game is the best example of that. So my wife, now wife, um, then girlfriend comes home from a party and I said, oh, you guys have fun. And she said, yeah, we, um, I said, what'd you do? She said, we played apples to apples. And she was with a bunch of 20-something theater kids. And I was like, what is a bunch of 20-something musical theater fans doing playing apples to apples and not playing a theater game? And then I went, oh, wait, there are no theater games. There should be a theater game. And I remember the moment. It was literally one of those shower moments where I was like, there should be a Broadway board game. Duh. And I scratched on my, uh, not scratched, but wrote in the fog of my glass shower door, be a Broadway star. And I was like, we're, we got to figure this out. Um, so we built a board game and I had never done that before. Literally the first people were like, how did you do that? And I'll say, you know how I Googled, how do you build a board game <laughs> and figured it out? I mean, that's the thing I think that I've learned of all the ideas that I've had and the things that I've done from crowdfunding Godspell to the board game. Yes. To building an app. We had an app for TKTS that was an entertainment weekly's must list. Um, that we just say, okay, it's not brain surgery. No one's going to live or die by this idea. Let's just figure it out and do it. Uh, and we do it. Um, so yeah, I've done a lot of different things. I learned from every single one of them. I've done a lot of things that haven't worked as well. I think people don't know about a lot of those. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to focus a little bit more. We're trying to do a little bit less mm -hmm. um, and, and make sure we concentrate as much time and energy on the things that we really do want to do. Who's we? Uh, we as my staff, I mean, I can't do this all by myself as much as I sometimes think I can. Uh, I'm very lucky to be surrounded by an incredible group of people that, um, actually I said before that, um, you should just say yes. Yeah. I have a thing. My employees are all just say yes people. In other words, when I, they're not yes men and women. Uh, but when I come out of my office and say, I've got an idea. And I've got that crazy look in my eye. That they all go running for the, right. for the bathrooms. Yeah. Well, so a lot of people would. And this is how I separate people that work for me and people that don't. But sometimes they look at me and their eyes kind of roll back or glaze over. And, they, and actually the festival, the theater festival that we have coming up is one of those. They all were like, I could see in their eyes like, he's, he's lost it. Is he crazy? But they take a moment, they go like, and then they go, okay, all right, let's figure it out. Again, no one's going to live or die by what we do. And actually, in the case of the festival, which is a monster undertaking, huge financial undertaking, we don't even know. Like, we're making this stuff up as we go. And But we said, we're going to do it because it's going to give 20 productions, 20-plus writers a chance to be seen in this city. And that's what I'm all about. So we're doing it. Well, tell me about the festival. It's called the Rave Theater Festival. And it's, this is the first year of it, yeah? 
this is the inaugural season. Yes. And so, hopefully there will be another one. I won't be able to tell you that until after this <laughs> one is over. August, August 9th through 25th. What's the website for that real quick? Give that a plug. It is ravetheaterfestivaler.com. Okay, cool. So tell me, tell me about that. Were, were you, did you take submissions? Who, who's the target, I guess, who's in it? So it's a it's entirely eclectic group of writers. We wanted a very diverse group and a very diverse group of shows. We have a teenager who's written a musical. We have a theater company from Ireland coming over. We have people a, a group from Australia. I mean, we really want it's like a there's a dance musical. There's an immersive like it's all sorts of stuff. So it's that, not just New York based people. No, wow. We, we that's why we called it rave. We wanted it to feel a little bit more experiential. Mm -hmm. uh, so. There will not be illegal drugs served at the, <laughs> it's not that kind of rave, um, but it's going to be a little different, a little unique and something in it for everyone. Well, you could hold it next year in Colorado where psilocybin is now legal. So, you know, whatever, just putting that out there. Um, did you take submissions? How did you collect all these people or did you reach out to them? Yeah, you know, I, I'm. we just said, hey, we're going to do this and submit. So uh, tons of people submitted from the blog and the podcast and some of the other things that I do, some of the workshops and things that I do. I certainly have known that there's a lot of people out there that have shows, that have scripts. And often for these people, they just need a place to do them. Mm -hmm. The, the interesting thing is the thought for, for those of you out there who have a script or, or an idea or something you've always wanted to produce, I'm sure this has gone through your mind. Like, I can never, I don't know how to do that. It's on a piece of paper, like, or it's in my head. I don't know how to do that. And often what they just need is a little, like, we've got a space for you. Fill it. And all of a sudden, it's that much easier. So really, that's what we're about. We're, we're, we're saying, we've got a theater. We've rented this theater. We're going to take that risk. We're going to market it for you. Uh, come and do your show, and, and let's see what happens. Because nothing can happen to a show when it's just on a, in a script form. Right. right. Plays and musicals were not meant to be read. They were meant to be seen and heard. So festivals are the best ways to give people a shot and new writers a shot. And actually, Alter Boys would not be the success that it was one of my first shows and that it is if it wasn't for the Fringe Festival because it's where mm. I found Kevin Delaguila who ended up writing the book for that and making it work because a lot of us had tried to make it work and we couldn't. And I saw Kevin's show at the festival and I said, this is the guy to do it. It sounds like you, you've made your success around building a team of successful people and correct me if I'm wrong, but like you're you're the ideas guy, and you're saying, okay, we need to do this. Here's steps A, B, and C, but all, how to get between the steps, you don't know yet, and you're not afraid of that, but you can't do it alone. Yeah, like so, I have a podcast as well, yeah. and the most commonly uttered phrase on my podcast from all of the A-listers that I have on, and all the Tony Warners and Pulitzer Prize winners, has been, I didn't know what I was doing, I didn't know how to do it but they did it anyway. And I really do believe this is what separates truly successful people from people that are not, is that ability to go like, I don't know what the F to do next, but I'm gonna do something. And that ends up moving you forward. And even if it doesn't get you to exactly where you wanna be at that point, eventually it will if you just keep doing it and keep doing it long enough. Is there something that stands out in your mind as 
like what was your biggest undertaking? What was your biggest holy shit? I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to do it anyway. First of all, I'm glad to know I can swear now because I was saying F and all this stuff because now I'm going to fucking swear. You know, so uh, you beep that out or you get the explicit on iTunes or whatever. Anyway, uh, so I've had a number of them. I mean, every every show I do has a, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to do this. And that's what makes my job exciting and scary and feels like I'm on a roller coaster. But that's also what helps, I think, make some of my shows certainly stand out. Um, so the first, you know, launching the Ossipedes Prom like I did, I had, was doing it at a nightclub. Um, certainly crowdfunding Godspell was a massive undertaking that I didn't have any idea what I was doing, um, which was raising $5 million from se over 700 investors for as little as $1,000 per person. Uh, that was an amazing legal undertaking, just a logistical undertaking. It had never been done before. One of those things. That was scary. I got calls from the SEC threatening to shut me down at one point. Really? I mean, oh, yeah. There were some scary moments. Why? Why? We got a lot of press, and the SEC was not ready for that kind of attention. So they said, wait a minute. We didn't know that this was going to be this big. We need to talk about this. Even though they had seen and approved everything, we had to go through another set of uh, regulation after the fact, after we had launched. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, so is the SEC normally involved when you're putting together a, a show in the first place? No, not. This was very different and unique because it was Godspell, because we were crowdfunding it. Yeah. So this is, again, something that had never been done before. And to do it in the way that I did it uh, with small investments and from what we call accredited or unaccredited investors in several states around the country, I needed specific approvals that required a little bit more oversight. How did you know you needed those approvals? I would have just been like, I'm going to put some show on and give me a bunch of money, a bunch of people. Like, how did you know this? Well, when, <laughs> when you're raising money for a commercial enterprise, you always have some sort of regulation and legal documentation and attorneys, et cetera. I knew I needed more. But the interesting thing is when I said to my lawyers what I wanted to do, they told me it must be 17 times. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. I've heard that many, many times in my career. And it was some late night Googling. I remember exactly where I was when I was like, wait a minute, what about this regulation? I brought it in the next day. We talked about it. We figured it out. I mean, I've done a lot of these types of things. I brought a goat to the Tony Awards last year. Uh, <laughs> Deaf West Spring Awakening, we moved in 83 days from Los Angeles to, to Broadway. My very first promotion for my first time, I let virgins get in free to the very first show, which were like went crazy on the press. And the one thing Wait, that all these- How did you prove that? I'm so glad you asked <laughs> because that actually was what got the promotion so much attention. I hired a PhD in nonverbal communication, a mentalist, a human mind reader, to stand at the front of the line, ask a bunch of questions, that uh, analyze handwriting and determine if people were lying or not. No shit. Yes. Wait, and wait, wait. You can tell if I'm a virgin by how I sign my name? We could tell if you were lying or not when asked a series of questions, just like a lie detector test. But this is a, it's like a, someone that was, worked with the FBI with Sesame Street to could really like understand body language and all of these things. Wow. So, yeah. That promotion actually got a mention on the, on the Tonight Show with Jay Leno. It was on the homepage of CNN. And I was actually featured in one of the first iPhone commercials talking about my first time. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons Steve Jobs said, yeah, that guy 
was because I think deep somewhere in his mind, he had heard about this promotion somewhere. That's crazy. Well, okay. So what were we talking about? Oh, uh, what were we talking about? Yeah. See, now you know what it's like to be me. This entrepreneurial ADD. I'm like all over the place. <laughs> we just, you've done so many interesting things in interesting ways. God, I, I, I remember the goat did not know about the virgin thing. Um, you were saying that you do things differently that when you're told you can't do them, that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Every single one of those things, a whole group of people, multiple people told me you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. And it would have been very easy for me to say, okay, I can't do it. But when I want to see something executed, this is the stubborn part of me. Maybe it's the only child in me. I just want to see it done. So you do it. And again, it's this feeling of no one is going to live or die by what I'm doing. My father's a doctor. I chose not to go into his profession for mm-hmm. a reason. I wanted to make people happy and make uh, and entertain people. And I always say, if we're not having fun creating some of these crazy ideas, the goat, all that stuff, uh, then how do we expect an audience to have a good time as well? Yeah, that's a that's a damn good point. Okay, okay. Um, for all of the projects that you are doing, though, so we've talked about we've talked about the board game. Um, we've talked. We, you mentioned the producer. You, you mentioned your podcast, but it's called the Producer's Perspective. But it started out as a blog much earlier, right? Or did it? Tur- or what? Did they launch at the same time? No, the blog is actually like eleven years old now. Yeah, Two thousand eight, so, right? Yeah, it's it's a, been a long time. Right after actually the iPhone commercial came out, or right before I started it, it was just the beginning of blogging. Really, I was one of the first theater bloggers out there. And podcasts, like oh five, Apple had the iPod, hence where the name podcast came from. They coined that term little known fact for those who didn't know um yeah so why start why start producer's perspective what was the point of of sharing that well i have a lot of ideas and i like to get them out and purge them and the other thing was i remember what it was like in 2000 2000 when i was just starting out and i felt very one as an entrepreneur i call them yeah very lonely I wanted to learn more about the business of Broadway. I wanted to get more involved in it. I wanted to create my own shows. I wanted to do all this stuff. And I just couldn't find any information anywhere. So I said to myself, one day, when I make it, not if, when I make it, I will make a vow to get this information out there in any way, uh, shape, or fashion that I can. Uh, And that's what I do. So um, I started this blog to talk about what I do every day. And I can't tell you how many people told me to stop. Like some pretty big heavyweights in this industry said, stop blogging. Don't share your secrets. We're a very insular industry. We don't want to invite people in. And I had a, I had a feeling that the era of transparency and lifting the curtain on businesses and co- in the corporate world was coming. And I said, I'm going to lift the veil on Broadway because I have this belief that there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that would love to get more involved in Broadway, whether that's invest, whether that's see more theater, produce, act, whatever it is, but they just need to know how. And if I can write a blog that gets a few more people interested in the theater, then that's better for the theater because I believe, I firmly believe the world is a better place if there's more theater in it. So if I can encourage people to get more involved in the theater, maybe they'll make more theater, support more theater, and that's just good for all of us. Oh, very, very much. And then so where the idea come then to turn it into a podcast? Because you're blogging, you don't have guests on the blog. But then the podcast, where did that come from? Well, I got a couple of emails from people saying, Ken, we love hearing your perspective. 
we wouldn't mind hearing someone else's for a while. So <laughs> that combined with me wanting to learn from all these amazing people. I mean, the interesting thing about the industry is we rarely talk about how people got where they are. We see each other for lunch. We see each other to ask for money. We see, you know, it's that typical thing, but we don't sit down and go like, how did you get here? And what do you believe in terms of what the theater should do? And how do you make a show? And like, I wanted to learn more from these people. So I did that. And again, I knew, I, I had a sense that just like with blogging, I'm a pretty good trend spotter. And I knew that this was coming. Mm -hmm. uh, and the podcast revolution, which you're a part of, is was coming and that there would be a whole new way to get a whole new generation and a group of people that don't read blogs interested in the theater. So now we have like 200 episodes. Yeah, you, you're, you've got a lot, uh, a lot of episodes, a lot of great names. And I, I agree, yeah, the podcast revolution here is, is upon us. There's another tech boom in the podcast world here. So I think though some some companies I don't know uh, their luminary of course Gimlet was bought by Spotify. There's so many companies out there, and and I'm really anxious to see where this goes. Um, I'm sure you are. <laughs> uh, and then we talked about the board game. You've done TV. You've produced TV and film. Yeah, I've explored some TV and film in terms of independent projects. So here's my thing: if I get an idea. I do it regardless of where it should go. So I've gotten a few ideas, like a board game, right? Mm -hmm. I've never created a board game before. I was talking to a band once and I was like, your story's amazing, I want to tell it. How do I tell it? It doesn't feel like it's right for a musical or a play. I'll do a documentary about you. So I shot this documentary about this band called Red Wanting Blue, one of the top unsigned bands in, in Ohio. Uh, and then the other one was I had this idea um, for a pilot and I was like, I don't, or I don't know, it just felt like television more than anything. It felt mm -hmm. like Reno 911 and um, uh, this uh, show called The Bunny, uh, sorry, Cat House. Cat House meets Reno 911. I developed this little concept. It's Cat and House about the, the, the gentleman's club in Vegas? Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, and I wanted to do a mockumentary in the style of Reno 911 about that. So I got a group of actors together. Many of the actors I'd worked with over many different projects, including the Automated Prom and getting the band back together. And we created this thing. So, and it went on to win a bunch of film festival awards and all sorts of stuff. So that's the thing. I don't try to say, oh, I'm just a person I that does only this. I am only in this lane. When I get an idea that feel is feel that I feel is better for another lane or another medium, I do that. So, okay. So then the, the documentary, talk to me about documentaries for a second, because as a, as a producer, as someone who at the end of the day still has bills to pay, are you doing documentaries? Are you doing these things? I mean, the idea hopefully is to make a little bit of money off of them so you can pay your bills, but documentaries, do, why do Red Wanting Blue, why do that documentary, um, when you win festi festivals, then what happens? Like, is the idea to get more attention on other projects? Or, like, why Why do things... Do you ever do things, I guess, is my question, that you know will not have a big return on your investment? I actually do things primarily that I love, or to that's such a generic answer, I will say that I do things that I want to see. And I do believe and I, I that my tastes are aligned with what a Broadway audience wants to see a lot of the times. You're never gonna never gonna get them all right. Um, and timing is a big factor in it. But 
that's what I do. I do shows that I want to see. You can never do a show or a project of any kind because you think this is going to make a lot of money. Every time you do that, you won't make any money. And I know that because I've done that a couple of times. I've been like, oh, I will do this thing because this thing will make money. And it literally is the opposite because you don't come at it from the right perspective. Uh, and the CEO of Twitter, when Twitter was founded, came out and they asked him what his business plan was. He said, I can tell you right now that I have a staff of 19 and not one of them are figuring out how to make money on Twitter. We're just trying to provide the best experience possible. I have a quote on my Instagram right now. I put that right now from this guy that's invented this flying board. And he said, and he's like all the, the rage right now because he's literally flying on this contraption. And he said, you can't chase things for fame or for money. Uh, you have to just have a great idea and want to go at it 101% uh, regardless. And ironically, or I should say coincidentally, or not coincidentally, he's getting fame and money right now. He's getting the exact thing that he said he wasn't chasing because he was. it was just a pure objective. So that's what I do. Um, and then you hope it comes. You just hope it comes because you're doing something that you love. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's the principle that I follow. That's that's good. I, and I'm going to talk about getting the band back together for a second. Speaking of things that didn't quite do so well. Um, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> so that was based on sort of your own personal past, right? Like you had a band and, right? I, I remember I went to a show and you were on stage and you gave the introduction about why you brought the the show to the Broadway stage. Is, and it, so that was obviously a bit of a passion project, something that you loved. Do, do you do you take it personally? Is it something that is internalized when something like that just kind of doesn't take off like you hoped it would? Well, look, I, and that show specifically was actually created with a whole group of people in a room. We improvised it to life. Uh, and yeah, it, it wasn't as inspired by a, my true story as that introduction may have made it sound. That was a bit scripted. Uh, in order to pick out an audience member that came back at the end of the show, if you remember. That right. was the whole point of that introduction, right. was just to find get a little audience interaction. I try to incorporate a little of reality or breaking the fourth wall in every single show I do. So getting the band back together at the end of the show, that guy that was referenced at the beginning comes back and is living out his best life and his dreams on a Broadway stage. In Once in this Island, we have a goat, we have fire, water, wind that the audience feels. The awesome 80s prom was reality and interactive all around you. My first time, you filled out a survey about your own first sexual experiences that we interpolated into the show and projected the data onto the screens above. Mm -hmm. So every show I do has this blending of the audience and the company on stage. So that and getting the band back together was an example of that. Uh, so look, I'm human. So when things don't work, of course, you're like, that hurts. I mean, I'm an artist. It hurts when you're uh, a business person too. Like, yeah, no one wants things to not work. But I will tell you this. I can always find good or something positive out of every single thing that doesn't work. Amazing things have happened because of getting the band back together. Uh, and I've met amazing people and all these things. And we learned a lot. Uh, and so much of things not working on Broadway, especially, is beyond your control, mm -hmm. right? This is the most cluttered and competitive market there is for live entertainment. Uh, and getting the band back together, a totally original musical, not based on any brand or IP in an era where 
pretty woman is down the block and SpongeBob is up the block and me like, how do you compete with that? It's mm -hmm. actually, there are books been written about how it's almost impossible to compete with that. Uh, and certainly when I started working on getting the band back together, Broadway was a different place. It wasn't so dependent upon brands. It just took a long time for us to get here. But yeah, it hurts. But I also know like, you know what? Someday I'm going to produce a show and I'm going to be like, oh, that one didn't come out like I thought. Huh, I wish it were better. And it'll probably make a zillion dollars. Like yeah. you just can't ever tell how things are going to work sometimes with timing and critics and, and all of it. So you just keep doing stuff. Like that's, that's my... That's my mission. I'm just not trying to try to put those blinders on, keep doing the stuff I love, be really passionate about it, stay true to my beliefs, and uh, the rest will take care of itself. What do you feel about about the current Broadway situation? Like right now, this August, like every other show is closing right now. What's happening right now this summer? So I just wrote a blog about this actually because I am predicting what I'm calling a market correction. Uh, coming in the next 12 months. And this is based on a blog I wrote a year ago, no, sorry, about four or five years ago, doing the same thing, where I studied. You know, I do a lot of research, and mm -hmm. this is the thing about me is that I, I go with my gut most of the time, but my gut also is based on some data and research that I tend to do. And we determined that there's a pullback in Broadway business every 3.67 years. And that pullback is usually tied to three things. Three very specific things. Presidential election. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows that. Here's one you may not know, but makes sense. The Summer Olympics. What? And the Summer Olympics are coming up in 2020. But think about it. It makes perfect sense. Summer Olympics are the main events. The big ones are all at night. Regardless of where they are in the world, they show them in prime time every single night right. at 8 o'clock. Right. So no matter where you are, you're going to want to watch some of that, the gymnastics, swimming, all the stuff, right? So that sucks a lot of air. And everyone's talking about the Summer Olympics. And it has an effect on business, I believe. And the third one is just crazy. It also happens to coincide these corrections with a leap year. And 2020 <laughs> happens to be a leap year. So I'm predicting it again. And literally, I sent this blog out. I had noticed the beginning of the crumbling in the environment here a bit when I saw a couple of Broadway shows announced closing, but for me, it was three off-Broadway shows that announced that got me very concerned. Musical, Puffs, and Avenue Q. Mm. These are three very, very long-running off-Broadway shows. And when, when a long-running show closes and you go, wow, they made it through a lot of dips over the past 10 years, something must be really different if they think they can't get out of this one. So when those three shows, and because the, the smaller shows obviously go quickly, and then as I the analogy I use is the flood kind of rises, the water rises and starts to hit the, the shows higher up on the hill, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden Broadway shows started to announce. And then we had two more, like in the last seven days. So mm -hmm. I wrote an update on that blog. So we're, we're going to see a little pullback here, but that's, listen, it's okay. We kind of have to see it. We've had a massive rise. Um, and every business needs a little pullback and correction to stabilize itself. Well, what, what's going to correct, though, from a business perspective? Are you thinking, like, right now there's just too much being produced and it needs to reset? Like, what, what actually gets corrected? There's a lot of product on the street right now, a lot of product. And we have, the good news is we have been spiking attendance. For a while, there was a lot of product and attendance was not going up. 
which means audiences were just diffusing mm -hmm. over the same number of shows. That's not good for profitability, right? Because the, here's the interesting thing that not a lot of people talk about. Broadway every year, booming, grosses, up, record year, record year, record year. The number of shows recouping their investment has not changed in decades. We are still about that 20 to 25%. So, oh my God, look at all the money coming in. But it's not re being returned in greater amounts. More shows aren't profitable. Because they're, they're spending more or like the theater... Rents, rents are higher. Like, All who's, expenses who's... are up. All expenses are up. We're a very labor-intensive industry, and you know we have to be. So expenses rise. So yeah, this money is not all of a sudden going into like more shows' pockets, which I think is unfortunate. I wish we could get that 20 to 25% up to 30, 35. We're never going to be a low-risk industry. We actually never should. The moment we're a safe industry, you'll see nothing but boring, boring cookie-cutter shows. So I like the risk because that's how you get riskier ventures. Um, but I'd like to see the profitability rise. And that's hard right now. Right now, we just have a lot of product on the street. That's interesting. Like, I still see, I mean, I, I feel like theaters themselves, theater owners, like Daryl Roth, Jordan Roth, Niederlanders, these people who own the spaces, uh, are, do they hold the lowest risk? Who holds the most risk in this, in this scenario? Producers. Because they're the ones raising the money, yep. so the do, so do they inherit the risk from the the investors? Well, the producers, through, I mean, the investors have the most cash risk because their their dollars are on the line. So yeah. I say producers, but yeah, I mean the producers and the investors. That's it. They're the startup. They're the founder of a startup. They're the CEO of a brand new company. They're taking the biggest risk. Wow. Yeah, I, the business side of this is so fascinating. Like I, I. Love talking about this, so thank you for being so transparent about it. Uh, that's really interesting. How how do you approach? How do you approach? Do you have go, go to investors that you're always going to? You're like, hey, I got a new idea, and they're like, oh, Ken's idea, I'm in, no matter what. Or do you have to sell them on it? Or how does that work? Yeah, it's everything. So you start out when you know my very first show cost one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. I had to raise it. I went to some friends, some coworkers, some people that uh, I had worked for some family members to try to cobble together. And then Alter Boys was more. It was a million. I did it with Robin Goodman, so I only had to raise half, but I had to figure out how to raise more. Yeah, I pulled some people from the awesome 80s prom that made money, so I pulled them into the next one, into the next one. And slowly but surely, you hope that your sphere of investors grows and grows and grows. But every show I'm due, I, I do, I'm out there stumping for the show. You have to pitch it. Yes, there's no question a group of people now will do everything that you know I do. Um, they believe in me. Thank God. I'm very lucky. I always say people invest in people, not in projects. And mm -hmm. I'm so thankful when I accepted the Tony Award uh, for Once on the Island, I gave a huge shout out to those people who, the, all the investors and co-producers on Broadway, they're the reason we have jobs. I mean, that's it. They're the reason why the play, playbill.com, they're the reason they exist. Because if it wasn't for shows getting produced, right, Broadway wouldn't, none of these people would have gigs. It's because of these investors willing to, to put up their hard-earned cash for it. Uh, so, yeah, and it grows every time I do a show. Um, you lose some investors along the way, of course. You gain some more. Um, but you just, you just have to go out there and stump for your shows that you believe in. Wow. And so the 25% the that does recoup, is it statistically, do they recoup enough? They must recoup enough to make up for the 75% of 
loss they have on the other investments. I like to say that investing in a Broadway show is like drilling for oil. You have to drill a lot of holes in order to find a gusher, but usually when you find that gusher, it does pay for some, if not all the others. I wrote about this. I wrote a book called Broadway Investing 101, which describes this process because Broadway is so hot right now. Tons of people are getting involved for the first time, tons. And I wrote this book because I wanted to make sure they were armed with all the information they needed to make smart and safer investments um, so that they they knew what was happening to their money when they wrote that check. As, as Americans, I think we are horribly undereducated in terms of financial advice, financial education. Have you thought about creating sort of, is it the equivalent of a hedge fund where you can take people's investments and then like as an entity invest in in other projects? Or how would that work? I've done something like this with development capital. So I raised a, uh, some money for from a bunch of my most loyal investors and said, I'm going to develop like 10 original Broadway musicals. And I'm doing that now. So I have the rights to the vacation movie franchise where doing Broadway vacations. So you saw European vacation, Vegas vacation, here comes Broadway vacation. The Griswolds come to New York City for the first time. I was going to say, are you going to get Chevy Chase in this? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, from what I hear, we don't want him anywhere near the building. So I have the rights to Joy Mangano's life story, who is the subject of the movie Joy. I just announced Neil Diamond last yes. week, Harry Belafonte. So all these musicals are in actually a development fund that I created for the purpose of getting these shows off the ground and spreading the risk. Uh, and I've thought about doing other things, but here's here's what I find for most Broadway investors. Broadway investing is like investing in art, right? It is. And when you invest in art, you hang that piece of art above your fireplace, right? Or on your wall. You want to love it. So it's very hard to raise money for a blind pool. Like, oh, invest, give me $100 million. I'm going to invest in a whole bunch of musicals. People who invest in musicals and want to take that risk usually want to know what they're investing in. So, and I actually like that better because they love it. Like when those 700 investors in Godspell, they were out there doing everything they could to market the show for mm -hmm. me. So I believe my investors are, are fans and friends and a marketing army for the show. And I like having that family rather than people just looking for, you know, some, the highest rate of return. Yeah. That, well, it seems, I, I agree with that. And I think it's, it's more beneficial, but it seems a little bit contradictory, uh, to what you said about trying to share the knowledge and share the wealth and figure out how to, how to like people are Googling, how do I invest in Broadway show? If you were to give them specific instructions, here's the front door and, oh, I, you know, here's this company I started. It seems like people without, you know, half a million dollars in liquid assets who are just lovers of Broadway could still get involved with that, no? Well, most funds involve, first of all, you have to be an accredited investor, which requires over a million dollars. Yes. Um, but... I find what my first piece of advice when I say if you want to invest in a Broadway show is pick a show that you love. That's the first piece of advice. If you don't love it, don't do it. Broadway shows are a lot like your kids. They're expensive and often they're going to disappoint you. <laughs> so make yep. sure you love the show just like you love a kid. Like that's that's the way you should approach it. And then you The show doesn't crawl in bed with me in the middle of the night keeping me from getting a solid night's it, sleep, but it, that's a different story. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I interrupted. No, that's what it's about. You got to love it. So if it doesn't work out because, you know, 75 to 80% of them don't work out, you want to be able to look at that poster that you're hanging on the wall and going like, I helped make that. And I'm so proud of it regardless of what happened. And then I believe as I talk about in the book, there's a whole bunch of questions and steps you can take to try to decrease your risk. 
to try to find shows that, yes, you love, but also a way for you to mitigate that risk and hopefully find some that make money. Okay. Wow. So much to think about. And I'm going to go read your book. What's your book called again? It's Broadway Investing 101. Broadway Investing 101. All right. So we'll we'll get to the end of this episode here. Um, you've mentioned a few things that you've already announced. Is there anything that you've wanted to do that you haven't done yet that you can talk about? Anything that I want to do that I haven't done yet. Like build a, a, a jumbo jet? Oh, I, what I really would love to do is I would love to build a new Broadway theater. And the, I do an April Fool's blog every year. And one of my favorites was, and, I, and it really was a focus group. It ended up being like a focus group because what I did was like, I'm building a brand new Broadway theater. Uh, it's going to cost $150 million. And I'm raising money on Kickstarter. Please click here to, <laughs> to uh, give me some money for this $150 million theater. And if you clicked on the Kickstarter thing, it went to a big April Fool's. Like, can you yeah. imagine kickstarting $150 million? So it was obviously a joke. But so many people emailed me and was like, Ken, I am in. Let's do this. I, and I was like, man, people want another theater. So yeah, I would love to do it. I've had a mini success at this because I ran an off-Broadway theater for five years at Davenport Theater uh, on 45th Street, um, which we just gave up that lease. But So I had a mini version of it. But wouldn't it be great to have a Broadway theater? Yeah. I think there is there's so much technology you could you could add into a modern day theater that you can't or just don't have space for in these theaters that are you know decades and decades old. So I yeah, I, space is at a premium in the city. But I'm gonna leave, I'll I'll mention one thing that doesn't make any sense. And when you when you think of it, you're like, oh my god. So you know, a Broadway theater can have three, sometimes four shows go in and out every year, right? Why don't they keep lights inside the theater so they don't have to move the lights in and out every single time? Well, isn't the lighting design part of the show's uniqueness? Yes, but many of those instruments are the same. Yes. Just like every theater around the country so you're saying has a rep plot, right? When yeah. you're, where, are you, where are you from? Uh, North Carolina. North Carolina. What was the theater there? NCT. They probably had a rep plot that they used for concerts. Broadway theaters don't have a rep plot. Wouldn't it make, wouldn't it decrease the costs? Yes. So the theaters don't own any of the equipment on stage? No. So we literally load in and out new equipment, even though it's the same equipment often and from the same companies often. Yeah. You hear that, Jordan Roth? Make it happen. With Ken, of course. <laughs> okay. Um, so... We have three standard closing questions that we ask everybody for the podcast. First, very simply, what motivates you? Passionate artists who want to make things happen. That's simple. When I meet someone who is like, I've got this idea and I'm going to do anything I can to make it happen, whether you help me or not, I usually want to help them. All right. And the second question is, if you were to give advice to your younger self or younger people now starting out down a similar path, what would you say? I give them the same advice my father gave to me, which I ignored, which was he used to say, Ken, you have to show face. And that was his way of saying you have to network and meet people more. I'm a guy that can sit in front of my computer all by myself and solve pretty much any problem. Like if you, I'll figure it out, I'll Google it. Before Google, I was re, like, I would just figure out how to tinker and to design a website, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. 
and what I missed on that was meeting other people who were just like me, who wanted to do cool things. And I actually think I could have accelerated my story and achieved even more if I had been out there saying, hey, you, you like to do this stuff too? Let's do something together. Uh, and I encourage all young people to get out there and create shows with other people. It's actually not only the quickest way to success, it's just a heck of a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, because they're going to bring connections in that you didn't know you needed or that, that could help you. That's yeah. exactly right. If you don't have a network, you borrow somebody else's. <laughs> True. Okay, so the last question. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? Your eyes got real big. I'm so torn here. Oh, jeez. You know, I there was a time when I would say Les Mis, and then I started working for Andrew Lloyd Webber, so then I'm saying Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> and uh, though recently what I, what I say now and what I would say is um, it's usually, you know, it's like asking your favorite show, right? What's your favorite show? Or which I think is like asking you what's your favorite kid? And I always say that, how could you ever ask me that question? I love so all my children and all my shows. And um, but I think if you pulled people away, you would the parent would say either their first kid or their most recent. Uh, so I would say once on this island, you know, I I that Michael Arden did such a brilliant job on that show, and I would go in there and watch it from so many different angles, literally because mm -hmm. it was in the round mm -hmm. and see all these little details that he wove into this incredible tapestry. Uh, and I I could sit and watch it forever. I'd never get bored because there's always something new. I loved the sand. I loved the the rug underneath the sand. There were so many just like just layers and surprises in what I thought was just a very stagnant set. Yeah. And that's yeah. the brilliance of Michael Arden. It's uh, yeah. that that was his world that he created from the from the sand up. And then it rained in the theater. That was incredible. And uh, we we interviewed Lauren Lott for this podcast too, one of our, our absolute most favorite guests. She's incredible. Anyway. Yeah, um, that, that rain and the sand and all that stuff is actually a mission of how I produce. I always say to myself, what can we put on a stage that an audience has never seen before? And because what's unique stands out and what stands out sells. So that's why there was a goat. That's why there's all these things. And you'll see that in the shows to come. You'll you'll see something that is unique and special and go like, oh, that's what Ken's talking about. I like if that, you buy lots of premium tickets. <laughs> I like that the goats had their own Instagram account too. <laughs> that was fun. Um, okay, so speaking of social, we can find you on Twitter at Ken Davenport, on Instagram, Ken Davenport B-Way. Of course, uh, visit ravetheaterfestival.com. Get your tickets for August 9th through 25th at the Clemente Solo Velez Cultural and Educational Center at 107 Suffolk Street. Anything else we need to plug here? Is that it? No, just uh, check out the blog if you're interested in the business of theater. It's just theproducersperspective.com. Um, On the podcast, too. And the podcast yep, as well. Everywhere yeah. podcasts are found, The Producers Perspective with Ken Davenport. Yeah, you can get more of me and the theater podcast at thetheaterpodcast.com. You can go to ttp.fm slash Patreon to show your support. And you can get more of us on social, theater underscore podcast, on Instagram and Twitter, facebook.com slash official theater podcast. Please give a rating, share with your friends. This is produced by Jillian Hockman, edited by Matthew Hendershot. And as always, thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music. Ken, this has been an incredibly enlightening conversation. I appreciate you coming in. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks for having a theater podcast. Oh, you're welcome. 
Let's make the world a little colorful. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.